You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. But the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. I am sure glad to have you today, and it means so much to me that you're here, and it means so much um, uh, to all of our staff, to our church that you're here, and it means that God is at work in your life if you're here. Um, Amidst all of the walks of life today that are in this room, amidst all of the seemingly regular things that you partake in, in society, in the community, on a regular basis, um, God is doing something um, in your lives and wants to do something in your lives. He's meaning to do something in all of our lives, um, something supernatural in you and through you. And uh, there is a greater reality, right? We, we live all, all week um, in, in the, the earthly current reality, although God wants to um, pull our minds and our hearts up into a greater reality, namely God himself and his love for you and his love for the world, and his mission through the work of his Son, and uh, all through his power, his spirit, and his word, and all in light of the eternity that we will spend with him um, in the afterlife. And therefore, um, there is a greater reality than than the normal mundane life that uh, that we maybe some some of us live in, and uh, this is the life that God wants us to live, and God aims to call you into this reality, especially now as we hear his word. And I pray that you would hear his call. I pray that he would call you into his reality and you would make his great reality your great reality. And so that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, his only son, would have great supremacy in your life. That is the great reality, that he is supreme. He holds the supreme position in all things. And I pray that you would make that a great reality to yourself. Colossians 1.18 tells us this, that in everything he might be preeminent or that in everything he might have supremacy. And that's always a good question for you to ask as we begin this stuff is, does he have supremacy in my life? Right, that's a good question for you always to ask. Does Jesus have supremacy in my life? Right? Ask yourself of that question in my daily life and in the world that I live in. Is his great reality my great reality? That he is supreme? Does he have great supremacy in my life? And so with that kind of sitting in the pit of your stomach a little bit, because none of us are perfect, let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Um, And uh, if, uh, if you're new here, we've been walking through the book of Luke, and we're going to just continue, right, until we make our way all the way through it. I'll be about 50. And uh, some of you won't be here anymore. Um, you'll be with the Lord. Just kidding. Um, maybe some will. And uh, so, now, um, so now we are continuing to walk on through this book. And it's a great, uh, great book that God is teaching us through. So, so far, what we've seen are the great testimonies of Jesus. The Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One, 
We've seen him be the son of man as we've walked through this. Fully human, humble, hidden, and tempted. Philippians 2.8 tells us this of Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We've seen him be this human being, this humble man, this hidden man, right? Tempted and tried here on earth. We've also seen him to be the son of God. Authority, power, mercy, right? God is revealing his son to us. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 tells us, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how he used to speak to his people. But now in the last days, and since Jesus has been on earth, we are in the last days, he has spoken through his son, his son Jesus, whom he appointed, look at this, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is God. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's God. And we've been seeing this. And so now we've made it to Jesus in full-time ministry mode. This is what he's doing. He's beginning his earthly ministry, right? Demonstrating to us who he is, right? Of his earthly ministry, this is what he aims to do, to show the world who he is. In the same way that the previous testimonies had done it, but greater. Because now Jesus is showing it about himself with his works and his words. And so that the people, we, we as people, the people who are watching this book, might see him and so believe in him and so believing in him receive salvation. And listen, if you're wondering about this, right, you don't have to wonder about this, whether or not this is the purpose of the Gospels, because John tells us plainly of John and the rest of the Gospels. Look, John 20, 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I mean, it just doesn't get any more plain than that, right? He tells us plainly, this is the point of the Gospels. This is the point of the writing of Jesus Christ, uh, writing about Jesus Christ and showing us who he is. So that's the point of all the Gospels, including Luke. And as believers, if you already believe in his name, that you would grow deeper, that you'd become more mature, making Jesus the shiny centerpiece of your lives. And so Jesus, in the passage last week, has demonstrated his authority to us to forgive sins, right? That all watching Jesus would say, this is indeed the divine son of God, and he has the authority to forgive all sins. He has the holy authority, the divine authority to forgive sins, the son of God on full display. And people are starting to get it. People are starting to understand People are starting to get who this man is, right? The people are starting to believe. And I hope you are too. I hope you are too as we begin to and we continue to walk through this and see who Jesus is. And this week, as we move into our passage, it gets better. Because what's happening is Jesus is building upon last week. We're going to see this. And Jesus 
demonstrating that he is the son of God, that he has the authority to forgive sins, right? Here he's going to answer, this week he's going to answer a great question for us that builds upon last week, and he's going to answer this great question for the people who are watching, who are learning about him little by little, and as they're learning about him little by little, as they're observing his personhood, his purpose in coming little by little, now they are understanding this is the son of God, he has the authority to forgive sins, he answers this very important question. Okay, he's a son of God. He has the authority to forgive sins. Now tell me, whose sins did he come to forgive? If he has the authority to forgive sins, if he indeed is the son of God who has this authority, whose sins did he come to forgive? Who's he pursuing with, with this authority to forgive sins? See, you got to get this. Jesus heals the paralytic man to display that the man's sins are truly forgiven because sickness was associated with sin. And by showing that his sickness had been healed, he's showing that his sins had been forgiven. He's displaying the authority to forgive sin. And who else can forgive sins, they asked, except God himself, right? Ding, 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 got it. I am God. And I can forgive. I have the authority to do it. No one else can, but I can. So in displaying his authority to forgive sins, he's displaying that he is indeed the Son of God. And now the question is very logical. What, what comes next, right? If you have the authority to forgive sins, whose sins did you come to forgive? Whose sins did the Son of God come as a Son of Man to forgive? Whose sins will he forgive? How far will he go with this forgiveness? Who is this for? Is it for me? Is it for them? What's your plan, Jesus? If you have the authority to forgive sins, whose sins will you forgive? And Jesus is about to answer this. And this is the next logical answer. I mean, sometimes I, I'm not even bright enough to answer this question, to ask this question, right? Jesus, he says, listen, once you understand that I have the authority to forgive sins, the next logical answer that I need to give you is whose sins I'm going to forgive. And for me, I wouldn't even ask that question. I just, I don't know, right? But Jesus, he decides in his omniscience that this is the question that he, the answer that he needs to give to this people. And so he's going to answer this question is whose sins he is going to forgive. Jesus is about to answer this and boy, will this bring you hope. This will bring you so much hope. I mean, this kind of mercy will bring you hope, so you better get ready because hope's coming right at you, full speed. Jesus is about to show us whose sins he's about to forgive. You see, they're not even really asking this question. As I said, not really, yet Jesus is answering it because he knows nothing could be more important for you to know. Because in answering the question in this passage, he will give his summary statement of why he came, his thesis statement that could really be taken for the whole purpose of his coming, answering the question, whose sins did Jesus come to forgive? And I pray that you would sing. I pray this would make your heart sing. Don't really sing if you're a bad singer, okay? Just sing inside your heart, okay? Or dance, like if you're a bad answer, don't do that either. Just, but dance in your heart, sing, right? Just kidding. Cry out with joy. This should be great hope. So much hope. The hope that this brings will change your life. But I also need to say, in order to be faithful to the text, that this answer could also be an indictment. 
The same answer in which he gives could also be an indictment. And the test as to whether or not this is an indictment or a pathway to hope is actually whether or not his answer brings you hope. (laughs) That might not make much sense to you, but listen, it probably doesn't make sense the first time you hear it, but listen, if Jesus' answer to the question, whose sins did he come to forgive, if his answer is full of hope for you, then you will have the hope that it brings. But if Jesus' answer brings you no trace of hope, but kind of just falls flat, And his answer, and I say this with all love, is more of an indictment on your spiritual state than anything else. And so you got to see whether or not this brings you hope. And and this is all over the scriptures. Listen, 1 Corinthians 1.18 describes this clearly. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved by it, the power of God. The same message of the gospel will bring everlasting hope for some, and for some it will be an all-enticing power to save, and yet for others it will be foolish. Have you ever watched this played out with people in your life? I, sometimes, it, 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 all the time, it breaks my heart. So for the very same reason, namely Jesus' answer, his message will bring such hope to some. Some of you will walk out feeling like you're on cloud nine, you're untouchable. And it will be an indictment for others. His answer, his answer is actually the reason for both. And I pray that it's not you that this is an indictment for. Listen, like, I, I want to pray in all love that you're not the one who's got it all figured out and that your perspective is so superior that everyone else is who has this extreme, all-encompassing hope in the gospel message. They're the foolish ones, and you got it figured out. Be careful. Because God said that it would happen that way. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. Christians, all we do is win. It looks like we lose, but we're always winning, right? And through us, this is what God does. He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, though, it's a fragrance from death to death, and others, it's a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not, right? We are not like so many. We're just peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. All we do is speak Christ. But some, for some, the gospel message will be foolish, and it will be a message of from life to life, and for others, it will be from death to death. And what we hear in this message is that the same gospel message will produce different results in some, and some it will be an indictment, and some it will be full of hope. First Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, and I tell you this because I have to, because I love you, right? First Corinthians 8, 1, 18 through 31, check this out. It's a little bit longer, but read it with me, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? And where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let those The one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Listen, this gospel, hope to some, foolishness to others. So I want to pray today. Listen, we got to pray. I want to pray that today Jesus' answer to the question of who he came to save, listen, brings you mega hope. Like, this is the hope of your life. And you'll leave dancing and singing. I want to pray. we got to pray this. And I would pray that you would see Jesus' answer to this question as the greatest hope imaginable and you would respond like it is as a Christian. You would live like it is as a Christian. You would share it like it is as a Christian. And if it's not the greatest hope, that you would see the specific reason as to why maybe it's not. And Jesus is going to reveal that to us. But that you wouldn't stay there. I don't want you to stay there. God doesn't want you to stay there. But that you would see why this message might not be full of hope for you and listen, and you would turn. And you will look to Jesus who forgives sins. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would make this message a message for hope, of hope for everyone in this room. Father, we come before you today. And we're so excited about what you're doing. We know, God, that you are revealing to us in your word who you are. You're the son of God. You have shown us that you have come as fully as a man to live the perfect life and die the death that we deserve to die. And yet you are coming as fully God, the Son of God, who holds all power. You are the representative that we see. You are the real God-man. And God, I pray that we would believe in both your humanity and your divinity. And God, in addition to all of this, God, you have shown us last week that you have the authority to forgive all sins. And today, God, I pray that as we look to the answer of whose sins you will forgive, that we would be full of hope, that everybody in this room would jump and shout for joy because of the ones you forgive. And God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who this falls flat for, God, that you would open their eyes so that they would also turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Y'all there already? Y'all ready? Here we go. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance." 
What an incredible passage. Listen, time for the eyes on the text, time to fall in love with the text and see what's really here, right? Jesus is the one with authority to forgive sins. He answers the questions to whose sins he's come to forgive. Two points. The first thing that we see in our passage is that Jesus calls the sinners. The first thing that we see in our passage is that Jesus calls the sinners. This is it. He calls the sinners, verses 27 through 29, and this is amazing. You ready? Verse 27, here we go. We see it says, after this, which is after he healed the paralytic man, right? Rise in the text. In the passage, we've seen above, that which we covered last week. So this phrase in the beginning of verse 27, after this, what it does is it connects the two stories for us, okay? It connects the two stories for us. Last week, Right? Last week, Jesus showing his divine authority to forgive sins. And this week, showing whose sins he will forgive. Verse 27, he went out. Right? And it's not as though just he was taking a stroll. Okay? When, he just, when it says he just went out, it's not like he just put on his robe and said, like, hmm, where should I go today? Right? This is Jesus, the Son of God, the omniscient one. He knows where he's going. He has intentions. He has plans. He's doing things on purpose. He always does. Never random, always reason. Jesus is going out after this, after he healed the paralytic man, after he showed the authority to forgive sins. While he was out, verse 27, he saw a tax collector. And this is the man. This is the man that he's about to pursue. This is the man that he's about to go after. This is the man that he is choosing. Undoubtedly, listen, there are people everywhere. This is amazing. There are people everywhere. Jesus Jesus could have pursued anyone. He could have pursued everyone. And Jesus sees this tax collector, and he says, ah, perfect. That's my man right there. I mean, this is amazing. He could have chose anybody. But this is his perfect man. Now, this becomes stunning when you understand the truth about tax collectors, right? As we see this, in these days, the tax collectors was the filthiest of men. Literally, he was the filthiest. I mean, he actually wasn't literally filthy because he actually, tax collectors were quite wealthy. But he was the most dishonest. He was the most manipulative, right? Of the people in Palestine, the tax collector was the most hated. The most hated. Palestine was subject to the Romans, and the Romans were the superpower. And so tax collectors for the Jewish cities, although Jewish themselves, were actually employed by the Roman government. Okay, And therefore, to the Jews, these Jewish people who were tax collectors employed by the Roman government were regarded as renegades, as traitors. Right? Yet because of being Israel natives themselves and not Roman citizens... So despised as scum them too, to the Romans as well. So they're left nowhere. Despised by the Jewish, despised by the Romans. But no one, none of this mattered. Like no one cared if you're a tax collector because of the money it offered. Listen, as long as tax collectors and their superiors were happy, the tax collector was willing to be hated in order to be rich. That's the tax collector. You see, the Romans, they founded taxation, okay, for countries that they ruled. And I would find taxation, too. Like, we need to start taxing everybody, right? 
We need more money for all of the places in which they ruled, and a certain tax amount would be established for each location. In this case, Galilee, right? A certain tax amount. And the tax collector would pay the established amount to Herod, in this case, Herod Antipas, and Herod would pay whatever was required to Rome as established by the Roman law. So the way that the system worked, listen, John MacArthur says it well, so I'm going to share this with you. He writes it real well, so I'm just going to read it to you. Listen. Ready? When Herod Antipas did, what he did was he, what was prescribed by the Roman law was to sell tax franchises. This is the way it worked. To the highest bidder, okay? It was a very lucrative business, and if you were an unscrupulous person, if you were a crook, if you didn't mind lying, if you didn't mind stealing, if you didn't mind cheating, if you didn't mind abusing people, you would get in line to own a tax franchise. You also didn't have to take your Jewish heritage very seriously because you would become a traitor of all traitors. Not only because you abused your people, not only because you extorted their money from them, but because you gave the money to the Gentiles, which is unthinkable. So somewhere along the line, Jewish tax collectors had sold their birthright, bartered away their heritage and their reputation in any social place at all, perhaps dishonoring their family and anybody and everybody who knew them, and they were sentenced to a life of association with thugs and enforcers and other tax collectors in order to buy a tax franchise. All of this, to buy the tax franchise. So the Roman government would establish an amount, as I told you, at the end of the year to be paid, and anything beyond that that the tax collector gathered, they could keep. There were fixed taxes, there were poll taxes, there were duties of all kinds, and all of these kinds of taxes left extreme room for extortion and exploitation. And then when you couldn't pay your taxes, they became loan agents who would loan the money at 50% interest or more, right? It's a lot of interest in case you don't know, okay? And if you didn't pay, then they would send their thugs to break your legs, literally. There's a kind of mafia, okay? And listen, they could stop people at any point. This is, how their, this is how their system worked. These tax collectors could stop people at any point. They could search their goods. They could tax their letters. They could tax their produce. They could tax what they bought in the market. They could tax them as they export, as they import. They could tax them from moving from here to there. They could literally do it all arbitrarily, and they could enforce it with their thugs who would harm the people if they didn't pay. And obviously the Jews who did this were most hated and despised because they probably took bribes from the rich, abused the poor, and did it all under Gentile authority. And of course, the Jews believed that the only one they ever wanted to pay tribute to was God. So the Jewish people despised the Jewish tax collectors. Tax collectors were also barred from the synagogues. Like, you weren't allowed in the synagogue. You couldn't go there. Why? Because you were considered unclean. They were classified with unclean animals in the ceremonial law, classified with Gentiles. They could not come into the synagogue or they would desecrate the whole facility and say nothing of anything to anybody lest contamination from them would get on anybody else. And so they weren't allowed in the synagogue. They were, forgi- they were forbidden to give a testimony in the court of law because they were liars, right? And here's what the Jewish law actually said. You can lie and deceive a tax collector at any time you want. Why? Because these guys are going to deceive you. The rabbis gave the Jews the freedom to do this. It was survival. If you could con them, maybe you could survive. One type of tax collector, stay with me, almost done with this, was a small-time tax collector. And these were the worst of the worst. Why? Not because they were most powerful, because they were the most manipulative. They were called mochas. 
And now they dealt with all sort of day-to-day things, duties, import, road tax, poll tax, bridge tax, letter tax, package tax, market tax, axle tax on carts, wheel tax, right? It's like we receive on everything that we do, right? Road tax of every kind. And they were criminals. They were the rankest, the lowest rank of all the tax collectors. They were the criminals of the criminals because these people, they weren't employed by a big franchise, right, that would be putting people at tax Uh, major tax stations. These were the ones who were actually the small tax stations, booths on the road so that people moving around in their day-to-day life would be taxed by this operation, right? And you were sitting here, and the worst of all, you would look at them, and these people would look at people face to face. Like, here's your family, here's all your kids, here's all your stuff, Face-to-face, I am going to look at you, and I'm going to say, I want your money, and if you don't give me your money, I'm going to break your legs. How about that? That's the deal. And so listen, you were the -the in-the-face tax collector, heartless, cutthroat, brutal criminal, most hated by all people. These people were at the bottom of the social ladder. The best thing that could be said about them is that they were just a shade below prostitutes. And what the Jewish writings would say is that repentance for these people, forgiveness for these people, was impossible. It was impossible. And if it wasn't entirely impossible, it was highly improbable. They were unforgivable. Robbers, Tax collectors and murderers classified all the same. And this is who Jesus sees. This is the man he would call. This is the man he would pursue. Verse 27. The tax collector's name is Levi. Or as described in the book of Matthew, this is Matthew. The same one, yes, who wrote the book of Matthew. He himself calls himself Matthew, so it's probably his preferred name, right? Like if you write a book and you name yourself, call yourself something, that's probably your preferred name, right? So he probably didn't like Levi too much. He liked to be called Matthew. We see it in Matthew 9, 9. Look at this. As Jesus passed on from here, same account in the book of Matthew of the same story. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed them, him. And this helps us, listen, this helps us because this man would not only be called to follow Jesus, this man would be an apostle. He would be one of the 12. This is who Jesus chooses. This is who Jesus pursues. This is who Jesus goes after. And it's amazing that this is who Jesus sets his sight. On. In verse 27, I love this. Look at this. Because not only is Levi the tax collector in whom Jesus is setting his sights on, but he's at the tax booth. Like he's there performing the very task that made him who he is. Like it wasn't as if Levi was taking a break and if like Jesus caught him at like one of his best moments, right? And said like, man, he, I'm, you know, this guy's pretty good. Like he mistook him for like an honorable man. That's not the truth. That's happening here, right? 
It wasn't like he saw him at a perfect time which qualified him to be noticed by Jesus and there Jesus said, this is my perfect man who I'm going to forgive. This is the scum of the known world. Jesus lives in this place. He knows who he is. And he's performing the very task that made him so unclean at the time of Jesus choosing him. And Jesus speaks to him. Verse 27, Jesus says, follow me. He says, follow me. He looks at this man who was so full of shame, so full of guilt, so full of sin. God had probably been working in his life because he probably heard who Jesus was at this time. And Jesus says to this man, follow me. Nothing more. No, in any of the accounts, Jesus doesn't say anything further than just follow me. And I love this because Jesus undoubtedly knew who this man was. And by this time, Levi undoubtedly knew who Jesus was. And when we see a statement like this, follow me, listen, we tend to put all of our focus and emphasis on the follow part, right? Like Jesus said to him in a command way, follow me. And he did it. What an obedient man. But I don't think that that's the point of the emphasis that Matthew heard. The emphasis wasn't on the follow. This man was understanding who Jesus was. The emphasis is on the me. Me. Jesus, the Son of God who has come to forgive sins. Follow me. I'm far greater. I'm superior. Look at me, Jesus, the Son of God who forgives sins. Follow me. Get your eyes off the follow and put your eyes on the me. Me, me, me. And it's a good note for us because if the emphasis is purely on the follow, then the me is just a formality to us. But if we see him and we put the emphasis on the me, Jesus, the Son of God who forgives sins, and the follow, it's just going to be merely the appropriate response. Who wouldn't? And that's what's happening here. So accordingly, verse 28, he leaves everything. That's what he says here in Luke. He's the only one who says this, of this story. He leaves everything. What do you think everything means? Everything. That's what it means. Everything, a detail of this account that only Luke includes, but how descriptive this is. Listen, this man left his identity. He left his dishonesty. It guaranteed wealth from his career, unquestionable wealth. As a tax collector, he was usually wealthy. Tax collectors were usually wealthy. Actually, Matthew probably was the richest of all the apostles. And he left a potential future wealth. And listen, you see, this is a big deal because even if following Jesus for, say, like, let's just say the fishermen, for an example, that we saw a few weeks ago, right? If this following Jesus thing didn't work out, right, these men could have returned back to their trade. This man would be through. Like, you don't go to a position, although manipulative, not many people have this position, abandoning his tax office. Listen, he left. His greed, his guilt his shame, his pattern of life forever. And he followed him, a lifetime commitment in an instant. And some of you, I pray with all my heart, would make that decision, leave everything and follow him. 
Who is he? He's Jesus, the Son of God. Who could be more worth following? I mean, what better could you spend your life doing than following the, the God of the universe who one day you will be with for all of eternity? This is child's play, the rest of it. Follow him. It's the only thing that matters. Give your life to him. Surrender to him. Give everything. That's the only thing that's going to matter in your life is to be with him for all of eternity. Fully satisfied in who he is. This man leaves everything. This was his man. Jesus called the sinner. This was the man. And listen, the greatest part about this is that the man didn't show any remorse. He showed no remorse. Verse 29, check this out. We get to see his first response. And his first response was to make Jesus a great feast. Like the man who finds a treasure in the field, and in his joy he goes and sells everything. No remorse. To follow him. To have him. The treasure. He had no regrets of choosing to follow Jesus, but rather an exhilarating celebration to forsake his own life, to forsake his wealth for Christ. Like this was a celebratory feast that he could forsake his own life and have Christ. Right? It's what Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So in his own house, as is fitting, Matthew invites a large company, verse 29. And who was his honorable guests? Who were these people that he invited? Well, it was a large company of tax collectors. And as Matthew himself shows in his gospel, because it doesn't tell us in Luke, Sinners too. Look, Matthew 9.10. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus at, and his disciples. So listen, more tax collectors, and in case that doesn't clarify that for you, Matthew does. Sinners. They're all there. Right? This is who's with Jesus and his disciples and with Levi. Sinners. They were the ones who were in Attendance. Now, this isn't anything complicated. Listen, the reason why this is his company was because these are the only people he knew. Like, these are the only people that Levi, Matthew, knew. These were his friends. Like, these were his associates. These were his ex-associates. This is who he wanted to celebrate with, that he had a new Lord. And undoubtedly probably wish to introduce some of his associates to his new Lord, which begs our attention just for a moment. I think all too often when we come to know Christ, we leave all of the sinners from our past life behind. We make our way slowly into the Christian bubble when in fact the converted person should not wish to go to heaven alone. Instead, reach those with whom he once partook in sin with for the gospel, that they might experience forgiveness and new life as well. And so listen, they're reclining at the table, verse 29. And this wasn't a formal meeting, right? They're reclining, right? Jesus was genuinely spending time with these people, eating and drinking, as we'll see in the next section. And so we see, listen, this section, Jesus calls the sinners, 
He calls the outcasts, not even necessarily victims. Like, lest you think this is like, these are the victims, he has pity because they're victims. They're really not. It's because of their own choices, who by their own choices have created for themselves a life full of sin. And I wonder if that brings you any hope. Let that bring great hope. I wonder if your life is full of sin. You're the one who Jesus pursues. He's come to save sinners. He's come to save those whose lives are full of sins. I I wonder if this brings you great hope. What hope? What hope that this brings? You feel like a sinner? Perfect. Because Jesus came to save you. Like that's the reason why he came. Jesus is calling you to come, to find forgiveness in him, to find a new beginning, to find a fresh start. This is who Jesus calls. Listen, don't let shame keep you away. There's nothing that you've done that Jesus can't forgive and there's nothing that you've broken that Jesus can't restore. Come or come back to Jesus, a savior who calls sinners. This is who he calls. You're the perfect candidate. As long as you're a sinner. Number one, we see in our passage that Jesus, he has come to call sinners. And number two, as we close this thing out, Jesus clarifies that calling sinners is his purpose for coming. So he calls the sinners, and then the back half of the story is just him explaining, this is actually the very reason in which I came. So we see, number two, that Jesus clarifies that calling sinners is his purpose for coming. That's his whole purpose for coming. So as we close out this section, we see verse 30. As this celebration is happening, or perhaps after, the Pharisees and the scribes, right, they do not share the same enthusiasm that Jesus and his disciples have, right? Actually, the exact opposite. As the saved sinners and as the Savior himself are rejoicing, they're not really happy. And this shows how different that they truly are. It shows how different the Pharisees and the scribes are from Jesus and from his disciples who had just been forgiven. Listen, that's what they took pride in, the Pharisees, ironically, to be the separated ones. Well, ironically, because they were indeed separate, they should be entitled the separate ones because they were separate in their hearts from the heart of the Savior. Their hearts were not like Jesus' heart at all. The Pharisees were not there at the reception. They weren't invited, right? I wouldn't invite them either. But maybe they observed the open house or maybe they observed Jesus going in after they had heard what happened and the scribes were there, which these ones belonged to the Pharisaic party. Not all of them did, but these did. And they grumbled. This is what they do. They began to grumble. Here's the sinners rejoicing in salvation. Here's the Savior reclining at the table with sinners. This is who he's come to pursue. And here's the grumblers, the murmurers, right? Like, let me assess this all from my perspective. While everyone else is rejoicing in salvation, right? 
Here, they murmured, they complained at the disciples, the strict rules of ceremonial purity. This was unthinkable for these men to sit with Jesus. And listen, they would have eaten, they, they would have never eaten with such people, such as Levi and his friends, and they were bound, these people, to be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Listen, there was no way they would sit with this people as to contract defilement themselves as if it was like someone else was like contagious. They would never associate themselves with sinners and more so, even more so, moreover, to eat with them because that meant friendship. That meant full acceptance. How could one who claimed to be religious eat and drink with screw-ups and sinners like these men? But yet Jesus was willing to be associated with darkness to bring light. This is Jesus. They, in fact, would not even let the skirt of their robe touch the likes of Matthew. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Verse 31. Although the disciples were dressed, Jesus says, let me take this one. Let me answer this question. I'll take care of this one. And with divine logic, he gives the thesis statement of his whole purpose of coming. This is it. You could summarize his whole coming, his whole ministry, his whole life, everything in these verses. <clears throat> Those who are well, he says, or healthy, referring to the scribes and the Pharisees themselves who were spiritually well in their own eyes, have no need for a physician. Referring to the reconciliation ministry that he had. They have no need for it. They have no need for the medicine of salvation. But those who are sick, referring to the tax collectors and sinners, Matthew and his friends were the very people who needed him most. Jesus didn't view them as criminals. He viewed them as ones that were ill. Sinners who needed the Savior. We should view ourselves and others in that, some of that same light. They need sa saving. They need help. We need Jesus. They weren't looked at as someone deserving of contempt and condemnation, but of love to help find the right way. And Jesus' Jesus's business was with these sinners. Listen, not the religious elitists. Jesus was not engaging the religious elitists who thought that they had it all figured out, condemned everyone around them, every church around them. Jesus wasn't interested in the self-righteous, but rather he came to call the outcasts of society and call them into discipleship. Come on, come with me. Because you see, this final verse makes it clear. Look at verse 32. The point of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous. And this, of course, directed at the Pharisees is ironic. Why? Because this does not mean that anyone is righteous. We know from Romans 3.10, look at it. None is righteous. No, not one. So what does he mean? He means I have not come to call the people who think themselves as righteous, who have no need for a savior because they don't believe that they're sick, because they don't believe that they need forgiveness. They don't believe that they're unrighteous. They don't believe the truth. These, I've not come the pe to call the people who are negligent to the fact that their sin is ever before them, before a holy God who will justly punish sin in a place the Bible calls hell. That's the meaning here. Listen, that's the meaning here. That's the meaning here. 
is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and this forgiveness is for sinners. That's who it's for. Not the ones who don't think that they have any sin. Listen, Jesus can help everyone. But he can't help the one who sees no need for him. I mean, he can. He can change your heart. But when you see and embrace that you are a sinner, this message of the Savior has great hope to it. And he's not come to call the righteous who think that they are righteous, self-righteous, on their own, can make it. He has come to call the sick, the sinners. Everyone is a sinner, but those who know that they are, believe that they are. This is for sinners. And this becomes, listen, indicting, because if you don't see this as hope, then it reveals that you might not know you have a sin sickness. You might not know that there's a punishment for sin, and you might not know that it's eternal death. And when you know that, this is of great hope. But if that means nothing to you, then this message falls flat because you're already righteous. And that's where this becomes indicting. It became indicting in the Pharisee, for the Pharisees. And I say that with love. I don't want you to stay there. I want you today to fully embrace your own sinfulness. Embrace it. Praise God, you're full of sin because Jesus came to save sinners. And he's not going to leave you this way. It doesn't mean that he wants you to sin or, or to sin for the rest of your life because you look at this in our last verse in verse 32, and this is what he says. He called the sinners to what? Repentance. To turn, to turn back to him. So this message is one of great hope. And as we look at this, listen, this does not mean that everyone is not a sinner, but he has come to call those who know that they need a physician, who are aware that they have a need, and they need a Savior because they're aware of their sins. This message is of great hope that Jesus calls sinners and doesn't leave the plans to plan to leave sinners this way, this way, but calls them to repent and to be changed. Listen, Matthew's account backs this up with one more thing that's not in Luke. I want to show you Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 through 13. Look at this. Those who are well, he says the same thing, same account, have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means, which was a typical saying like, you don't understand this, right? I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I've come not to call the righteous or think that they are righteous, but the ones who are sinners, not that everyone is not, but those who know that they are. I desire mercy for sinners, not sacrifice, whose by their own works believe that they can satisfy God and his standard. You can't. By no matter how many good works you do, he desires mercy, not sacrifice. We, as people, want by our works to earn our salvation. So in this way, church, Jesus come to save sinners. And I hope that this is a message of great hope for you. I hope this is not one of indictment. I hope that you like the sinners, rejoice, throw a great feast, leave here forgiven, freed, turn to Jesus, cry out to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, confess to him your sin. He knows it. He loves you. He came to save sinners. And if you believe this, then my prayer is to you that you would find the greatest hope imaginable. No matter how far you've gone, Jesus offers you mercy. 
No matter how far you've gone, Jesus offers you grace. The whole point of this whole thing is for Jesus to save sinners. And listen, this isn't arbitrary. Like, again, the Bible makes this clear. Look at this. 1 Timothy 1.15, he makes it clear to us. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Clear as day. child could understand it. If you know you're a sinner, church, listen. Take heart. Take heart. Rejoice, because Jesus came to save and to change sinners. Cry out to him for the forgiveness that he has the authority and the mercy to provide. Don't stay away. Don't let shame keep you away. There's nothing you can't forgive. Run to a Savior who came to save sinners. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. And God, I just pray that we would have great hope, that we would be a people of great hope, that we would be a people who fully embrace all of our hearts, that we indeed are full of sin. And you're changing us, us Christians, day by day, but God, we are sinners, that we would be full of hope because Jesus, you came to save sinners, that we would look to you, a Savior who pursues those who know that they're full of sin. And God, I just want us to, I pray that we would walk out of here today and that we wouldn't stay away from you any longer. We'd run into your arms. We'd cry out to you. We'd call out to you. We'd come close to you. We'd let you save us and change us and give us hope in you. And God, I pray for those in this room today who this maybe falls flat for. God, I pray that you would open up their eyes today. I pray that they would embrace the fact that they need a Savior because their sin separates them from you. And I pray that they, too, would find great hope in embracing you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for, for being a Savior who has come to save sinners. Those are the ones you came to save. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.